Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Tim Recker. Tim is the Chief Investment Officer for the James Irvine Foundation. The foundation's mission is specific, a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Tim and his colleagues manage $3.5 billion in assets to fund that mission, and Tim's been an investor for more than 25 years. After starting out at GE Asset Management, he ran private market portfolios at the Michigan Retirement System and the University of California before coming to Irvine in 2016. Tim, thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the foundation. Can you talk a bit more about your mission, who you serve, and how those investment returns you're generating make that possible? Yes. Well, first, you already stated our mission. And I mean, it fundamentally boils down to that every Californian, regardless of where they are or where they live, they should have the opportunity to create a better life for themselves and their families and they deserve a living wage. And so our mission is focused on that. And our team's primary goal is to generate the highest possible returns to grow our grant making dollars and increase our grant payout every year so we can have a greater possible impact. And so we're a California specific foundation. So we only focus on California, but we invest globally. And when we think about our investment portfolio, we've had a long history, I think of, I would call it of superior governance. We've got a long tenured investment committee that you know has relatively slow turnover. The committee has taken very thoughtful decisions over a long time horizons around how best to grow the endowment at a meaningful pace. And that allows us to grow our payout from a relatively modest amount, say 30 or 40 years ago, to where we're at today, which is uh, about $130 million. Let's talk about the portfolio. I know venture has a really important place in your portfolio overall. It's a critical contributor to your returns. And when you came to Irvine, you inherited a portfolio that included, as I understand, positions in a lot of managers that other LPs would love to access but can't today. And reflecting back a decade ago in the depths of the financial crisis, venture had really fallen out of favor. And COVID, I think, has really brought to light for many LPs that they're underexposed to tech. There's been some booming interest in software as a strategy and venture capital. And venture fundraising last year broke records uh, about four times more than was raised a decade earlier and deal volumes at an all-time high. So venture's got its ups and downs, even with the very best managers. How do you think about that exposure in the context of your overall portfolio over the long term? Yeah, I think it fundamentally comes down to, you know, we have a lot of venture because it's a competitive advantage for us as an institution. So we start by constructing our portfolio with what are our competitive advantages as an organization. We believe superior governance is one of them. We also believe being in the Bay Area is a second one. And we're also allowed to build a portfolio of best ideas, which is linked to the governance. And therefore, venture, if you look at the history, is a very high returning asset class if you're with the right relationships. And then, you know, prior to Irvine, I've always said venture is not an allocation. It's how much access do you have and you invest up to your access limit and then you stop. Irvine is the first place where I think our access exceeds our dollars. And so we have to turn away good ideas on venture. And so for us, it's really about arbitraging time horizon. 
most institutional investors are not willing to take you know multi-decade decisions because of career risk. And so the amount of venture we have, the way I described to my committee is I'm taking significant personal career risk because most committees, when it's out of favor for five or 10 years, which is likely will occur at some point, they will get exhausted by the underperformance and will fire their CIO. And so we have talked about trying to think in decades, not in a few years, and really be deliberate of how we evaluate performance of our venture portfolio. So we try to separate the tilt to the venture, which has a joint decision, in my opinion, between myself and the investment committee, and the selection of the managers, which our team wholly owns. So if the tilt is out of favor, then hopefully the committee will be patient, and I have conviction that they will be. Some of my CIO friends tell me that I'll be fired uh, when that happens. Going back to the point you made about you invest up to the access that that you can get, and and you've got more access than you've got dollars, do you feel like there's anything that LPs out there that are really craving access to more venture in their portfolios can do? Or is it really down to structural considerations in terms of the type of investor that you are and the relationships that you build over time? Basically, is this something that LPs can learn to do that haven't historically had that access? Venture is a very complex asset class. It's had an extremely <laughs> incredible run here lately. And it's draw, obviously drawing a lot of interest and creating a lot of, I think, pressure and, and sort of challenges. However, if you're coming to a space, you know, without that sort of long history, it's difficult. I think the first question I would say is, is do you actually know what a great firm actually looks like? And I'll be honest with you, I've invested in various firms in the past, but when you see great portfolios or great venture managers, they behave differently than the average. And so you first have to know what you're looking for. And I would say, you know, some LPs do. I would say a lot actually don't. And so it's not, it's not their fault. They just simply don't have the access to see the differential between the top few firms and everybody else. And so once you can see what differentiates those top few firms, it helps you look for, in my opinion, you know, other firms that you think would be attractive. And so I think we also do what we call barbell strategy. It's either fund one or it's a you know top five, top 10 firm. And so there's really not much room in between. And so they're going to prove themselves and be a future top performer or they already are. And I, I guess I'd be curious if you'd be willing to share any of those calling cards. You've got the, the benefit of a, a pretty deep and broad view as to what good looks like. Are there calling cards that differentiate those truly good managers that LPs maybe don't have the depth of historical experience should be looking for? I think one is what return do you expect from the fund? We think in money multiples, not in IRRs. Obviously, there's a component there that's important on the IRR, but you know, fundamentally, it's about money multiple. And you have to decide how big of a money multiple defines great in your mind. And I think many LPs underestimate how big that number should be. And I think the industry makes a very good living generating, I'll call it modest returns. And you could question you know, the quality of the risk-adjusted returns. And so I think it's important to really make sure you're thinking you know, significant enough in terms of the return profile you're looking for relative to sort of other privates. You know, if you want to invest in, say, buyouts or real estate or other things, what's the money multiple increase that you expect from venture given the additional risks and approach? Yeah, interesting that you're saying that LPs aren't maybe setting the bar quite high enough. In a similar respect, I wanted to talk a bit about emerging markets because there, I think, where you set the bar really does matter. Early in your career, you spent three years based out of Hong Kong while you were at GE, and that took you all over Asia. Your portfolio at the foundation now is heavy on emerging markets, especially China. 
where a lot of LPs, maybe not necessarily on China, but LPs have been skeptical about markets where privates are more nascent, particularly over the last five years or so. Is there a link you draw between the exposure that you had early on and how you think about these markets in the investment context? Absolutely. I would say first and foremost, it was the most fortuitous decision I made. I had a choice between going to London and Hong Kong. And fortunately, I chose Hong Kong because it was really a foundational decision for my entire career. Having a deep understanding of emerging markets in general, particularly Asia, has been extremely helpful. And so I've been going to China for 25 years, pretty much every year. And, and having that full arc of history, I've got maybe a higher conviction in the stability of the government and its ability to navigate challenges. I'm pretty positive on the country in terms of its long-term path. I think the beta of emerging markets is not attractive. And we actually measure, again, going back to tilts, we've got two major tilts in our portfolio. One is the venture capital, one's to emerging markets. The emerging market tilts has hurt us consistently for quite a few years, but that's not why we're investing in emerging markets. We're investing in emerging markets for the alpha, for the managers, and our managers more than offset the loss and the tilt. So it's a question of what are the opportunity sets, what are the quality of the managers that you can access? They're finite. Again, this goes back to maybe size of institution. We have a competitive advantage being at $3.5 billion. We can scale and size our managers to matter in the portfolio. And so... Well, you know, there may be a finite number of great managers in, say, China. If you've got the right few, the alpha they can generate is significant. What about emerging markets beyond China? What's been your experience in, in other parts of the world? I have directed most of the capital under my control to China with a smaller amount to other geographies. I've, I've never chosen to allocate to Latin America. I've never found it that interesting. At Irvine, we have little to no exposure to Latin America uh, directly. We have some indirectly that managers might identify things. India is usually the largest market and the best market right after China, in my opinion. It's also been a very challenging market, and there is opportunity for idiosyncratic returns. But again, another market that's challenged and also challenged by currency depreciation. In 2006, seven timeframe, there was a big decision. I think a lot of announcement foundations were looking at China, looking at India, looking at other emerging markets, and deciding how to, how to play that. And I, you know, to a large degree, I allocated most of my capital to China, a small amount to India, and then kind of ignored the other markets. And in hindsight, 100% to China would have been a better decision. To switch gears a bit, but maybe stick with a bit of reflection, Tim, you were on the ILPA board from 2007 to 2013, and the last two years of which you were the chair, and you were part of the group that crafted the, the ILPA principles, both the first and second editions. And I always point to the principles as the first time that LPs really collectively articulated what is important to them, set table stakes in the quality of alignment and transparency they expect from managers. And I'm just curious now, a decade on, how do you think we're doing? Have we lived up to that vision as an LP community? And was it realistic to think that LPs would vote with their feet on less friendly terms, particularly where your investment returns have to come first? And there's such fierce competition for allocation, especially in the venture space. First and foremost, I would say it was a tremendous privilege to be a part of that working group. And I do believe it did have structural change for the industry in a positive way. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And this is the first time I've truly seen tremendous unity across investors. When we were having, doing that working group, we had a 
membership meeting and we had several hundred investors in the same room. We were, we were running round tables at each table, maybe six to eight, 10 people and had a moderator and trying to figure out what was important to different people and how we can make this work. And the amount of energy, I don't think I've ever replicated that energy at another meeting. It was just fascinating and, and wonderful. You know, at the same time, there's a finite number of great managers out there. And so at the end of the day, terms are not what generate a superior return for you. You know, again, this goes back to the scale of your institution. If you're running hundreds of billions of dollars, then fees actually make a bigger impact because your ability to be differentiated from the market is more difficult. But if you're a smaller institution, that's not going to make or break you. The decision of who you back is going to be the most important. And so I think you do have to look at it holistically. I do think that the industry, broadly speaking, probably is too lax, relatively speaking, on some of those terms, but it's very difficult. And I don't want to be naive. And it's very difficult to walk away on terms. And I think you can you need to do the larger you are, the more important it is. I guess I would just challenge that and ask whether you feel like on some of the terms, it's gotten to the point where LPs really do need to walk away. The one I, I would call out is probably what we've seen with fiduciary duty in some of the documents. Does that rise to the level of being a deal breaker in your mind? It actually doesn't. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you why. It's not that I don't think it's important. I absolutely do. The type of managers that we choose to back, if I need a fiduciary duty clause to want to back them, I got a problem in the first place, quite frankly. And the way I would describe it is, Again, this is the privilege of having great partners. If you have a concentrated portfolio with great partners that have strong track records, the vast majority of them do the right thing. And it doesn't matter what the legal document says, they're going to do what's right to a large degree. And so I've always thought about it as if I need the legal document to govern the relationship, then I have concerns around the relationship. And sometimes there's great managers, that's part of the deal, and you go in eyes open. But broadly speaking, if I have a portfolio that's full of that, then I'm probably not picking the right managers. And so I really think it's really important to think about alignment of interest. And that can be defined in many different ways. And I don't think it's always about the legal documents. And I guess, and the flip side of that, one of my, my, we were talking about a manager about climate change and their policies around ESG. And they said, would you like a nice, glossy policy on ESG that makes you feel good that does nothing? Or would you like a manager that says nothing, but does the right thing? I think that's important to think about. You're right that terms won't guarantee your returns, right? It might protect you on the downside, doesn't really get you on the upside. What are some of the other attributes or kind of qualitative aspects that you're looking for during diligence or in your ongoing conversations with managers that would point to the fact that the alignment is there, even if the documents don't show it? Again, it depends on history. And if you're backing managers that have a longer track record, then you can actually look and see what they've done during difficult times or when things haven't worked as well to get a better understanding. We back a lot of first-time managers and you don't have a track record to look to. And so it really is spending a lot of time talking to them. One of the things I really try to figure out is, are they in this to make the highest return for themselves or the highest return for us? And I think you, you, know, you need to think through what that really means. But if their goal is to maximize their personal wealth, at our expense, that's probably not the greatest relationship. We expect our managers to get very rich if they do well, but we want it to be aligned. And I think really talking through that and actually using examples, I actually give them examples and say, what if this happens? How would you handle that? And I think just really trying to get to the core of how do they make decisions? What's What are their values? How do they think about things? So I think it's really, in my opinion, just trying to align with people that are like-minded and have a, a, a basic view of fairness and equity around the relationship. Circling back to the foundation, it's no accident that several of the conversations featured on this podcast series focus on people. 
and on inclusion and diversity specifically. And the James Irvine Foundation has taken a bold step, I would say, in identifying as an anti-racist organization, which seems entirely in line with your mission and who you serve. So walk me through the process that brought you to that conclusion and what does it mean from an investment perspective? I'd first say that it starts with our program team. This didn't originate out of the investment portfolio. We serve low-wage workers in California. 76% of low-wage workers in California are people of color. So there's a, you know, a component and a connectivity around racial equity and fairness that goes to the heart of our programmatic work. And so when we as an organization in 2020 decided that we needed to do more than what we were doing, we also decided it wasn't going to be just at the programmatic level. We would look across the entire organization, including the investment portfolio. My team has committed to try and figure out what that means. We call it operationalizing racial equity. We've put together a draft framework of what that looks like and have shared that with our committee. We're in the process of trying to execute against that. We need to think about our portfolio and what we can do while focusing on generating great returns. So we look at that, that framework. It has four key components. The first is, what's the diversity of your team? I'm fortunate that my team is diverse, both cognitively and ethnically. Culturally, we represent ethnically about the equivalent of the California demographics. And so we're fortunate to start with a diverse team. I think that's an important underpinning of our entire process, which is if you have a more diverse team, you would hope you have less inherent bias or unconscious bias in your process. Second is we need to look at our processes to figure out where we have unintended bias. And that's a major effort for this year and the next year. An example of that would be when we back first time managers, some of them are forced to sell a minority stake in their firm if they're led by a person of color because they tend to have less capital. And so we would normally exclude them from our selection process because we would say, well, you're not aligned with us. You sold a minority stake. It's not interesting to us. And I think when we were speaking to another a manager that is highly successful that had to do that, and they said, like, I had to do it out of necessity, it caused us to really think around, well, we can ask more questions around that issue and figure out, is that really an alignment issue or a necessity issue to build the firm? So we're working on you know, thinking about process. The third is, what's the actual diversity of our managers? And so we are starting to you know, actually collect the information and have conversations with our managers around how they think about diversity. And then finally, we have to remember that our job is, with the investment portfolio is to generate grant-making dollars to impact our programmatic works. And the greatest way the investment team can have the most impact directly related to low-wage workers in California is to generate the best possible returns. And so we weave all those four things together to try and figure out how to make this work. And I think at the end of the day, it, we're, we're early in that journey. We got a lot of work ahead of us. Just to follow up on the point you made about the engagement with your managers and their own diversity, you know, so much of the focus has been on visible aspects of diversity, but in, in you touched on this, but I, I know that you've placed a premium on cognitive diversity, which can get lost when we only focus on what's in front of us. And just because you attract a diverse candidate does not guarantee that you're bringing in a different perspective. So when you have these conversations with GPs, do you observe they're putting in the effort to recognize and disrupt their own biases in where they recruit and, and who they recruit in terms of the profile and the pedigree? I generally start with cognitive diversity and seek that out. And I've been fortunate that when I do that, we get cultural diversity as an output. And that's not true for everybody. Some people you know, target cultural diversity first. With our managers, we do worry. We've had conversations with some of them that I'll call it the cookie cutter approach to how they hire. They hire from only two or three or four schools. It was a very specific track of experience, et cetera. And 
we just worry about, is that really creating the greatest degree of cognitive diversity within those firms? As we ask, you know, we try to ask more questions around that and trying to better understand the firms. I think this is more prevalent in the larger firms. The larger the firm, the more likely this is the case. But I think it is prevalent throughout the industry. We generally have smaller managers and we're just more open-minded to who we back and why we back them. So if you look at the diversity of our manager base, it's much more diverse than the industry. And I think it's a function of having a diverse team. Again, our team generally come back from more humble backgrounds. And so we're, I think, more open-minded in terms of what, what does it take to hire a great person? And even if I bring that back to our own team, we have a summer fellowship and we partner with some other foundations and endowments. We were not getting the level of diversity that we were hoping for. Our team was brainstorming around what can we do differently? And we decided to offer a housing allowance to make it a need-blind process to make sure we got social economic diversity. And when we got social economic diversity, we also were able to enhance cultural diversity of the talent pool. We all talked about it and basically said none of us could have really have accepted that kind of internship when we were at that age because we needed the money to earn, to save. And we we're excluding a whole cohort of individuals that would be great. You know, we're looking for attitude and aptitude when they're young. And we're just excluding that because you're basically saying, if you're not from a family of privilege, how could you possibly afford to come to San Francisco and work for the summer and pay your entire income to pay for housing? So I think there's examples of things that you can do that make a difference. Are the managers doing enough? I think it's up to each manager to make that the decision for themselves. But it's something that we, we do try to think about when we're looking at them. And so what was the result of the change that you made to the internship program in terms of the housing allowance as far as the diversity of the candidate pool? So we ended up having a third of the fellows that are Black, but more than 75% of the fellows are people of color, including Chinese or Southeast Asian descent. And it's also diverse by gender. And so we had always striven for diversity, but we really fell down on sort of attracting Black talent into the pipeline. And ironically, you know, just because you had housing doesn't necessarily mean that they necessarily need housing, but I think it showed it's something that was important to us from a values point of view that attracted a different candidate pool. So I was more pleased, not just with the outcome, but just the type of individuals that applied. I think it really opened up the filter to you know more candidates that we may not have historically have included. That's fantastic. Well, let's talk about you and your career. So many of the LPs that I speak with point out that a sense of mission is a big part of what has drawn them to becoming an LP, and it's why they stay an LP. And clearly the foundation has a, a compelling vision for the change it seeks to make in the world. So how critical was that to you when making the decision to join the foundation and to your career path, kind of looking back even to Michigan and, and to UC Regents, how, how critical has mission been to you? I've been fortunate that most of the places I've worked for you know, are generally mission-oriented in one way, shape, or form. And I would include pension plans and that because you're generally... I'll call it working on behalf of the average American. When I was at Michigan, which was a pension plan, when I looked around the universe and met different investors, there was just a commonality of the people that I respected the most happened to mostly be in endowments and foundations. And I was just drawn to that subsector of the LP universe because I felt that those are people that I aspired to, to be more so than any other group that I met. And so that's what really motivated me to go to the University of California initially. And then from there to Irvine, to be candidate, you know, I first started the process, it was just, it was an ENF CIO position. But as I went through the interview process and really learned more deeply about the mission, it personally resonates with me very much. It matters to me that low-wage workers have opportunity to advance economically. And so I have a lot of passion and drive to generate the best returns possible to make a difference. 
And just to pull back a little bit, and let's talk about career management, you've said that you've kind of fallen into the path of being an LP. When you started out in your career, it wasn't something that that you consciously navigated towards. What have you done over the last 25 years to position yourself and, and to make the most of your career management? When I first came out of undergrad, I didn't know what Wall Street was, didn't understand how it worked. And honestly, I just sort of fell into investing. When I was coming back from Hong Kong, I took an investment job just to be near where I wanted to go to graduate school and fell in love immediately. And so from there, I was very fortunate that GE did a study in the late 90s that the future CIOs would be very important to have alternative experience for private equity and hedge funds. At the time, that was pretty novel. Today, it seems obvious that it was not common sense at that point in time. I was running a liquid portfolio. And so my next move was to go to Michigan, which at the time, I think, was one of the top five programs globally in terms of allocating capital to private equity, had a great legacy portfolio. And once I was there, I simply looked around, and as I mentioned earlier, I saw the endowments and foundations as individuals and that I generally aspired to, to be like in terms of the investment universe. And that's what moved me to the, the UC. So I'll be honest, I didn't have a lot of great mentors that sort of laid out the path for me. I sort of had to you know look and learn. And certain people obviously along the way were very important to me. Every CIO I worked for was very instrumental in what I, what I ended up doing long-term and helping me become a better investor. But it wasn't as if someone put me under their wing and kind of explained how the world worked. In thinking about those CIOs, what would you say is the best investment advice that you received that you still use to this day? One of the best pieces of advice I got was be patient. You don't have to be in a hurry to do something, and particularly in privates. I think a lot of investors come in, they feel a desire to, to allocate capital to demonstrate that they're doing something. And sometimes the best thing is actually not to be doing that and to you know, understand that private capital can be a 10, 20 year <laughs> relationship. And, you know, usually they extend beyond the duration of your career at that institution. And so being really thoughtful about portfolio construction, being really thoughtful about the pace and timing of how you do things is really important. And as you said earlier, you know, if you are lucky enough to be in a place where the governance structure supports that kind of patience, the career risk that you touched on earlier, all the better. It allows you to make those, those very long-term plays. What would you be doing if you weren't a CIO? That's a great question. I choose to work in what I have a passion for more than anything else. So at this stage of my career, my, my passion is around having impact and helping others. So I enjoy teaching. I do some volunteer lecturing and, you know, in, in classes and things like that. I, I enjoy doing them. So I can see myself doing something along those lines. I could also just see myself doing pure nonprofit work and just helping, you know, volunteering for different organizations at different points. So Tim, last question. Are there any books that you're reading right now that have been particularly compelling? So there's a couple that I've read in the last six months that probably stand out as the most interesting. The first, we've been reading a lot of books around racial equity. And I think the one that stood out to me the most was The Color of Law. I think it's you know reasonably objective and lays out a pretty clear case of systematic racism in the country that was government sanctioned. And Second, I would say is I just finished uh, recently Rockefeller's biography 
I'm very worried about sort of where we are in a sort of super cycle around technology. And I believe we're sort of a technological revolution that you only see every couple hundred years. And so I'm looking at the industrial revolution and studying autobiographies to try and understand what happened to businesses, what was the social cohesion issues. I, I believe that the wealth disparity is going to grow, which I think links directly to our mission of supporting low wage workers. So I think any re- books related to sort of the industrial revolution could be interesting, as well as the color of law. Fantastic. Well, Tim, thank you for your time and your insight. This has been just wonderful. Great. Thank you. 